the way to do that is to really give space to to the new generation to cultivate their own passions and interests and skills and expertise and not to hinder them from that path. It is important for our community to progress and without Hey everyone, it's great to be back for another episode of the Assyrian Podcast. Shlama alochon. This is Peter Ibrahim bringing you episode number 165 with Evelyn and Uya. Evelyn graduated from DePaul College of Law in 2001 with a Juris Doctor and Certificate in International Law. Since graduating from law school, she spent the past 20 years as an international civil servant employed with international tribunals in The Hague, Netherlands. She is specialized in international justice with a focus on judicial administration, capacity strengthening, and governance of international organizations. From 2017 to 2021, she led the Division of Judicial Services at the Special Tribunal for Lebanon, STL. Evelyn initially joined the STL in 2009 to serve as the Registry's Senior Legal Advisor. Evelyn worked at the United Nations International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, ICTY, since September 2001, holding various positions within the registry. She was the Registry Court Officer at the ICTY on the Prosecutor v. Slobodan Milosevic case and was assigned as the Registry Pro Se Legal Liaison Officer, acting as a conduit between the court and the self-represented accused. A few tidbits that Evelyn wanted to add is that she remains grateful to the Assyrian Universal Alliance and the Assyrian Aid Society who supported her initial legal internship with the United Nations in 2001 by awarding her with a generous scholarship. The scholarship opened the door for her to build a very successful career. She is currently an international consultant with Axiom International Limited, supporting a counterterrorism justice project in Iraq. You know, on a personal note, it's interesting to add that my father and I would frequent Evelyn's parents' store in Modesto, California. It was known as Eastern Market. And so imagine six-year-old Peter walking into Eastern Market with the sounds of Assyrian music playing in the background, Iwan Agassi, Sargon Gabriel, Ashur Sergis, and the smells of fresh coffee, cardamom, fresh-baked bread, and a row of cassettes, Assyrian cassettes that I was so jealous. I wanted every single cassette. You know, one of my er- it's definitely one of my earliest and fondest memories of going to the Eastern Market in Modesto, which I would call, which I call actually the third place for Assyrians because it was social central. So 30 years later, I happened to come full circle and I'm able to interview Evelyn, which I'm very grateful for. I'm also grateful for Nora Perdohanna for alerting me that Evelyn was in town this past fall. And I'd also like to thank John O'Shana, who so generously allowed us to record this interview at his office in downtown Turlock. Before we begin, I would just like to take the opportunity to remind you to make sure you subscribe to the podcast, rate and review us wherever you listen to the podcasts. And might I add, Evelyn does listen to these podcasts. Also, if you know someone who should be a guest on the podcast or even a host in your country, please reach out to us. You can find out more information on our website.
This episode is sponsored by the Oshana Partners, a husband and wife real estate team. Are you considering purchasing or selling a home in Arizona or California? John and Rita are available to help make your next real estate decision into a seamless transaction. Contact the Oshanas at 209-968-9519. Get to know them a bit more by checking out their website, theoshanapartners.com, T-H-E. O-U-S-H-A-N-A-P-A-R-T-N-E-R-S.com. And now, let's listen to Evelyn. Welcome to the Ethereum Podcast. Thank you very much, Peter. This interview is like a year in the making, I want to say. <laughs> I need to, I like thanking people. Uh, I want to thank Nora Hanna-Purdo. Put out a... I think it was a Facebook status, if anyone knew where Evelyn, Evelyn and Leo was, you know, because I, uh, we'll get into it later, but I knew that you were someone who worked in a tri- in tribunal somewhere in The Hague, and I was just trying to get a hold of you to do an interview. I thought that you would, this would be a perfect platform for you to showcase your story and then showcase uh, to the Syrian world who you are. So uh, thanks, Nora, and thanks a year later. I reached out to you and I heard you were in town. So yes, I'm happy yeah. to be here. Thank you. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I'm glad to have it you worked back. out. Yeah, pleasure to have you back home, Evelyn. I want you to recall for the listeners your earliest memory, one of your first memories from my childhood. Oh yeah. Oh, that's a good question. My earliest memories. I have many, but I'd say the one that had a profound impact on me was um, I think it was 1986. We were living in Ceres, uh, just down the road from Modesto, and we were living in the apartments there on Whitmore, and my dad showed up in his brown Buick, <laughs> I remember very vividly, and he was so happy. He had a huge smile on his face, and I was standing outside, I think I was well, bicycling, and um, he had a key in his hand, and he was kind of d- dangling his key. And he had just um, signed a lease for a small store on off of McHenry. Wow. And uh, and I remember it because he was so happy. It was like a dream come true for him. And, and that was a very special, special day for me because you could, when you see your parents kind of bring their own um, dreams into fruition, it's, it's, it's quite special. Yeah. So that was the beginning of um, what many people in Modesto know as uh, Eastern Market. So I want you to go into where were you born and and what brought you over to the United States? I was born in Baghdad, uh, Iraq, and we left uh, Iraq through Greece. We arrived in Michigan, winter. It was 1979. Spent a very short time in Michigan. Uh, I remember my dad complaining about the snow, and then eventually we we arrived in California. His best, my dad's best man lived in Modesto. So I think he had called his best man and said, what's the climate like over there? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, obviously the climate here is very similar to what they were accustomed to. So mm-hmm. we, we ended up here. Why did your family leave Iraq? Oh, um, just a better life for me. That's the My dad had a tough, uh, my dad lost his father at a young age, and he's the eldest in this family, so he uh, didn't have the opportunity to go to school and had to 
to take care of the family. So we left. I think he wanted, I'm the only, the only child, I'm his only daughter, and uh, he wanted to have, to give me a better future. That's, and to give us a better future. So you land, you go from Detroit, Michigan to Modesto, California. You're a child. How was it like transitioning? Because I'm assuming, you know, you you grew you grew up in Baghdad, Iraq. You went to school there perhaps early on. And then you transitioned to school in California. So what is that like? What, are, what Do you remember anything from those early days of coming over? I do remember... I remember school in Michigan where, so we spent some time in Greece. So I, you know, as a kid, you're a sponge, right? So I picked up a little bit of Greek, which I don't necessarily have today, but back then I did. And I, but I, and I did not know English. I hadn't learned English yet. So I remember the teacher uh, was Greek (laughs) and she, I remember the cue cards to teach me kind of ABCs and she would communicate in Greek and you know, and show me the alphabets. And I remember that very vividly because it was through, I mean, it's just so ironic, right? So through Greek, I got to English. (laughs) I remember that. And I remember um, arriving at the apartments on Whitmore and, you know, which was just a great experience, uh, great place to, at the time in the 80s, to be a kid because, you had this park in the middle, and there were lots of Assyrian families there. So I had very close, um, you know, Jacqueline and Vivian, who I actually saw recently. We would play outside all the time, and, mm-hmm. and you know, the families knew each other and trusted each other. So it, it was a good transition point, I think, for we weren't isolated. We were actually integrated into a nice community in yeah. series. So tell me about the Eastern Market. Tell the listeners, actually. I, I know a lot about Eastern Market. But tell, <laughs> I, I want you kind of perhaps to, to frame a little bit of a picture for the listeners. Oh, so my dad, I think if my dad could have done things again, he probably would have been a chef. He loved everything about food and cooking and spices. And he loved getting recipes and recreating recipes. That was a joy of his. And I think he got that from my grandfather, who was a cook. And... Um, he used so when we arrived to Ceres, so we, we lived in Ceres before moving to Modesto. We only moved to Modesto in ninety. He lo- he worked at Lewis Rich. I don't know if Lewis Rich still exists, but it's a, it's a turkey it was a turkey factory and mm. he was a forklift driver for them. But he injured his back and had to go on disability and my dad wasn't one to not work, so I think that disability period really um got him to think about what he really wanted and and he decided that this small store it was a very tiny place off of McHenry and I used to spend my weekends there packaging spices into plastic bags (laughs) (laughs) I remember that before he started buying them packaged as a kid as a kid those were my weekends were with him and then eventually he he was able to grow the business and moved to the location that most people know, which is the one on the corner of Coffee and Floyd in the Coffee Plaza. So that's mm-hmm. where we were most of our time. And Eastern Market became kind of the hub of different immigrant communities that were not just Assyrian. We had lots of Greek customers and Yemeni customers. And it was really um, a beautiful mix of international 
mm-hmm. internationals who were in search of something familiar. Yeah. <laughs> right? A taste of home. <laughs> yeah. And, and I loved spending my weekends there. Usually it was a Saturday that I was there because I got to meet. I got to meet so many interesting people from the Assyrian community, also from other communities, got introduced to different foods and tastes. And my dad would spend lots of time talking to people about, you know, what they did with certain spices. <laughs> it was just fantastic. I think for, for a kid who ended up traveling so much, it was a great place to start discovering the world. Yeah. I remember going into Eastern Market with my father. And, and I think my introduction to this episode will really highlight for the listeners like what Eastern Market was. But there's this term called the third place. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's home is one place, work is another place. And I, I feel so like Eastern Market was that third place for a lot of Assyrians because I remember my dad would go in there and I'd go with my dad and we'd be in there for at least like 20, 30 minutes yeah. More than three-fourths of the time was spent to, like, social hour, which was great, you know? Yeah. And that's what my dad loved the most. He loved that. And uh, he loved socializing. He loved people. And and I have to say that's something I've taken away from that experience as well, mm. is, is that experience, that love for not just a particular type of people, right? Just the diversity of people who would come through right. there. What do you remember from the Assyrian community as a whole growing up in Modesto? I remember beauty of people taking the time to visit each other. You know, whether it was Easter or Christmas. I remember Christmas in particular where we would go door to door, you know, to greet people and to wish them a Merry Christmas in person, not mm. through a text message yeah. or a, <laughs> Um, it, it was just so, I don't know if it's still like that today. I, I live in an expat world right now, but when I was growing up, that was a priority. And I also remember the ladies in the neighborhood in series would go to different houses. And I remember when they would come to our house, they would make um, three, four different women, Assyrian women. They would make a leche and kada together. And I remember coming home from school and the newspapers would be on the ground <laughs> and the delicious warm leche would would be rolled out and they would divide up you know with families and also prepare packages mm-hmm. for other families i just that custom the the it's the slower pace of living mm-hmm. that i remember mm-hmm. that i i don't experience necessarily anymore how was it going through high school obviously and i think by now, the listeners know that you're well-accomplished and well-educated. But how was high school like for you? Did you did you know in particular what you wanted to do? You know, who was kind of at the forefront of really teasing out your, your passion, you know, for education? Oh, gosh. Uh, that, so I went to, maybe just to track back, I went to Walter White Elementary School and then El- May Hensley Junior High and then Series High School. And May Hensley, I got skipped a grade, so I, I only spent one year in the junior high. So I was supposed to be class of 91. I ended up being class of 90, which was strange because I kind of left my friends and <laughs> created new friends, which was, which was fine, which was fine. And what I was exposed to at high school, it was a lot of the college fairs where they would come and they would speak to you and they would get you to apply and... 
you know, so I actually got admitted to go to Holy Names. We've talked about this a little bit. Um, Holy Where Names. is that? In... It's in Oakland. It's a small Catholic school. Oakland, California? Yeah. Okay. And I remember <laughs> going to my dad. Poor dad. He had to put up a lot with me. And I had a full ride. And I said, look at this. You know, I've, I've been accepted at 18 to go to Holy Names. And my dad was in complete shock. <laughs> he was like, you're not going anywhere. And that was the beginning of yeah. of really uh, that that's kind of that split identity, understanding more about that split identity of, OK, I want to, to achieve more and I want to do more. But mm-hmm. the culture pulled me back a bit and and we argued a lot and we talked a lot. What was kind of your father's what was his reasoning like as if you can kind of reflect on that? What was his reasoning to be like, no, we want you to stay local? The reasoning was, it was driven by fear, right? It's one side, what will people say? You're not married and you're moving away from home versus you're only 18 and can you really handle, you know, have you learned enough to be on your own at 18, especially in like a city like Oakland? He, so he, he was always supportive of me getting an education. So that was never the question. It was the distance. And it was what will influence you wherever you are, because I'm not going to be the there. <laughs> yeah. Factors, yeah. 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 I mean, that's the control element that I think every parent feels. And I definitely feel it now that I have kids. I uh, One of the first things I said is, oh, I understand now why my parents were. <laughs> 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 I get it now. <laughs> But at the time, for me, it was a battle because I wanted to do something more. And um, so the deal we made was that uh, I would stay here for three years. And then I then we'd discuss again. Yeah. <laughs> Which was a fair compromise from, from him, I think. So what were those three years like? Oh, those were... <laughs> so I want to just say one thing about the people who influenced me. Yeah. Um, because... There was one man who really had, um, and, and he's deceased now, his name was Francis Morand, uh, a relative who was really an amazing human being. And Francis was um, a person who believed in reading. And every time you'd see him, he'd have a book in his hand. And he'd came to Modesto a few times, and he introduced me to yesterday's bookstore. Oh, yeah, yeah. On and McHenry and Standiford, yeah. yeah. And he said, oh, you have to go there, Evo. It's one of the best bookstores. And and every time I'd visit, he was living in Michigan, and every time uh, I'd go to Michigan, he he would take me to a bookstore and we would buy a book. And that was, and, and that had a big part of, you know, it helped, the books helped me cultivate a passion for something else, right? Because I was, I was, given the space to escape in my mind. And and I think Francis really helped me get to that. At what age? What age was this, this recollection of you going to the bookstore? As of 12, uh, I so I had aunts and uncles in Chicago. And at my eldest aunt, my dad's eldest sister, lived in Michigan. And my dad's nephews were there. And I had an aunt also there. And so I would, we had longer summer breaks, so I would spend a substantial part of my summer there. So I started traveling kind of on my own. My dad would put me on the plane. My aunt would pick me up. <laughs> <laughs> so I would, 
But those years were wonderful because I got to get, I was exposed to the Assyrian community in Chicago, the Assyrian community in Michigan, my relatives there, my cousins there. Wow. And we, we um, so starting at 12, you know, they were just really important years because it wasn't just the books. It was also just the exposure to other people. <laughs> you mentioned one thing, escape while reading books. Was that something that you you had to do or it was just escaping more so this is a great opportunity to read this book and really dive into what this book is about i think that it was the journey you know just the journey of discovering creativity and discovering stories Mm -hmm. other people's imagination well i i didn't grow up in a family you know my own family the immediate family there weren't necessarily books around people weren't reading and so I think reading gives you a freedom that is so important because it tells you that you could imagine and you could think outside of the mm-hmm. normal cultural structure, <laughs> right, that you're given orally. Yeah. Uh, either, I mean, we, we grow up in very strict households. You can't do this, you can't do that, especially for girls growing up. You know, I wasn't allowed to go to the prom. <laughs> I wasn't allowed to go... I definitely didn't have sleepovers. I didn't, I wasn't engaging with American, I was allowed to play with Assyrian girls who lived in the neighborhood because my parents knew. So it was a very structured, routine life. Mm -hmm. Uh, His, you know, Eastern Market exposed me to more, but then the books kind of took me intellectually to another. And Eastern Market, so Coffee Plaza also had, back then, had a wonderful bookstore that so during my breaks <laughs> when, the, when things were slow i would i would go you know i would have my pocket money and i would go and just roam yeah you know some stuff i found was trash some stuff i found was good you know but it didn't matter because it was just the, the the discovery of whatever it was so the three years are up what happens after the three years do you, you have a new discussion with your father about moving to a a traditional four-year or continuing to get your bachelor's? How does that conversation go? It was, um, well, my dad made the mistake to, of buying me a car. <laughs> <laughs> and the car gives you also a sense of freedom because you could move. Mm-hmm. And um, a great friend of mine, had Mary, had uh, got me a job at Wells Fargo Bank. So I had money coming in, at least some. Yeah. <laughs> I interned at the district attorney's office for the prosecution in the victim witness section. And I joined student government at Minnesota Junior College, and I joined the church youth group, and I joined the Assyrian club at MJC. So I did <laughs> I did a lot. I, I think I overstretched myself. So I yeah. did quite a lot, volunteer work. And and that, uh, what, what it meant is that I was constantly on the go. On the go. Mm. So my parents... Um, and I was doing well in school. So I think they saw that I was able to, to juggle. But it was hard because we uh, we still lived in a very traditional context, right? And my dad struggled quite a lot with the idea of letting go. So I applied to, I chose to go to University of San Francisco, fantastic Jesuit school. And I had my aunt fly over from Chicago, <laughs> and she was going to be my, 
my weapon. Yeah. <laughs> we rented a baby blue Lincoln Town Car, <laughs> and, we, <laughs> and we drove to the Bay Area. And I was determined to give her the best experience in San Francisco because I wanted her to love the school. And it's a Jesuit school, so you see priests kind of walking around, and mm-hmm. it has a gorgeous cathedral. We met some people on on campus, and it was such a beautiful day. We had such a great time. And so my aunt, uh, we drove back the same day, and my aunt went to my dad, and he's like, Inuia, you have to let your daughter go. (laughs) (laughs) And that was was it. But we we had a very special, uh, so when... We finally moved. When I finally moved to USF, I moved with one of my close friends at MJC, um, Kimmy, and that also helped because we had to live in the dormitories. The, at that time, because it was a transfer to a four-year school, we lived in the, the older kids' dormitory. So <laughs> we had a beautiful view of yeah. the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, it was called. It was Lone Mountain. Kimmy's mom helped us uh, load up my dad's minivan, and we drove up there because my dad had to work. And I think my dad was comforted in knowing that I had a friend with me. Mm-hmm. Like we were kind of going at it together, and uh, and so he finally came out. We were we visited some some family friends who lived in San Francisco, and we went to the church up in San Francisco, Kashaninos's uh, church. Which is, yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. We had a dinner there, and my dad and I were standing outside, and he 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 got tears in his eyes, and he said, you know. I've given you as much as I can give you. Now it's up to you to make the right choices. Wow. You know, and that was... Did he tell you that in Assyrian or English? In Assyrian. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That was a very special moment for me because I knew he had faith that I would make the right choices. I mean, you don't... You're never perfect, right? You always make mistakes along the way. But knowing that he believed in me pushed me to mm-hmm. do to do good. So. What do you major in at USF? I majored in politics. Mm-hmm. Why politics? What was your oh gosh reasoning behind politics? Elected office? <laughs> I'm not sure if it was elected office, but it was government for sure. Uh, I I think the inf- I was influenced by interning at the district attorney's office uh, in Modesto. That helped uh, just in the people I was exposed to. I thought I I thought I wanted to do government. I did at MJC, I did study uh, quite a lot of, you know, I did ethics, mm-hmm. I did um, did philosophy, <clears throat> and then they, USF referred to it as politics. But what, what really was um, most inspiring from, from studying politics was the fact that I could dig into global politics which at the time I didn't realize that was going to be an interest of mine, but that's mm-hmm. that was the path. Uh, I was taught by a great professor from India. And and then they brought over, this is kind of this serendipity, uh, they brought over a professor from Stanford, Michelle ne- Professor Michelle Nepti, Lebanese, to, stud- to teach us Middle East studies. That was towards the last year of mm-hmm. my studies. And that shook me more than you, you could imagine because I thought my gosh because you norm, you know you're normally studying western politics and history and so forth and all this, and sometimes you study ancient but this was exposing me to modern day middle east yeah politics and we did uh, a model league of arab states which was a great experience 
And that's when I thought, uh oh, I'm actually loving this. Yeah. <laughs> what do I, I do next? <laughs> yeah, I did. I did model Arab League for two years. Where uh, at? undergrad? Yeah, at Stanislaus State. It's a good experience. It is. So, did you also feel a connection because being from Iraq? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, being from Iraq, but also wanting to understand more, right? Yeah. Professor Napti exposed us to Middle East politics that I wasn't necessarily exposed to at home. Mm-hmm. Right? We didn't talk about it enough. We un- I understood Assyrian history and I understood yeah. things from a very uh, kind of narrow perspective, but he exposed us to a lot more. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wasn't ready to stop. I wanted it to continue. I wanted to learn more. So I'd asked him, I said, you know, what, what do I do now? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so he was kind of my first main mentor in, in helping me carve out a career path. Um, so I wanted to go to, at the time, I wanted to take a break because so you can do a study abroad. And um, I wanted to go to the American University in Beirut. This is after USF, after you finish? I wasn't finished yet. Okay. So this would have been taking like a semester and going, well, study abroad year. So yeah, you go and the credits come back and count towards your degree. Um, So I wanted to go to, so this would have been 95. Okay. Professor Napti's wife was teaching anthropology. I think it was anthropology or sociology Mm -hmm. at AUB. The American University in Beirut, and American University in Beirut in the history books is is an iconic place, yeah. right? All the big minds came through AUB, so I thought, my gosh, that's where I want to go. But they were just coming out of the Civil War, and back then, we didn't have Google search. <laughs> we had to go to the library, and there's a big, thick book that you would locate the telephone number and an address, and you would either write or call. <laughs> And the offices <laughs> representing uh, Be- the American University in Beirut uh, was located in in New York. Uh, so I called them and they told me that I was an American, which I wasn't an American yet. I was a green card holder. Mm-hmm. Uh, they said I, I couldn't go there. But their sister school, the American University in Cairo, was accepting American students. So anyway, long story short, I ended up in Cairo uh, studying it was supposed to be six months, but I ended up staying for a year, two terms. How did you run that by your dad? <laughs> I run, okay, so see, this is, <laughs> I was scared out of my mind. So to I, go to Cairo? Or well, no, 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 no. I was excited to go to Cairo, but I didn't know what my dad would think. So I went to my, but keep in mind, at the time, he had lots of Egyptian customers. Yeah. And, uh, and I'd been living in San Francisco for a few years now. So I, I, I would always come home on the weekends. So I came home and I said to him, uh, Dad, I have some news. <laughs> I wanted first to make sure I'd get accepted, right? So I applied. I got accepted. I said, I'm, I've been accepted to go to the American University in Cairo, which he knew of. And he's like, oh, I'm going to come with you. <laughs> it's been my, he's like, it's my dream to go to Cairo. So he, he came out with me. And it was the best... Um, I think in terms of a father-daughter experience, it was the best time for me because we we did a th- one thing that was uh, very important. My, my dad's middle brother was a prisoner of war during the Iran-Iraq war, and he had just been released in the early 90s. So he got asylum uh, to Malta. So he and his family were in Malta. And so 
we decided that we would go to Malta first wow. and spend time with his brother who he hadn't seen for a long time. And that was just a remarkable experience. We flew through Rome and then made it back to, to Cairo and Cairo. He, he left me there and he came back, but it was one of, it was a trip of a lifetime. I bet. But he, he did, you know, what every Assyrian father would do. So when I lived in the dormitory and the dormitory was a very glamorous dormitory in Zamalek. And so he went to all the security guards and he said, you see that girl? She's your sister. <laughs> you, <laughs> you keep an eye on her. You know, my dad spoke Arabic, obviously. And so he set the ground and wow. they all had their eye on me. Spend one year in Cairo. Aside from school, like what's your social life like there? You live in the dormitory mm-hmm. as an international student, and uh, you bond with people who are who are there, right? So weekends we would go to either um, you know to Luxor. We would do trips to Luxor. You would see Egypt uh, in a way. It wasn't the security situation was very different back then. Mm-hmm. Um, so we traveled a lot through the country. I think the social life. I don't remember it being. You know, it is the Middle East, so I don't remember it being uh, anything spectacular. Yeah. Uh, the food was, you know, going out to eat. You're a student, so you didn't necessarily have a lot of money to go out to to wine and dine. That wasn't an option. Uh, we would eat in the dormitory a lot, and we would sit in the the common place, you know, the common area, and meet because in the top the top uh, floors of the dormitory the professors lived with with their families there were apartments so we actually got to meet really interesting people who were coming through and teaching at AUC as well so I did as I wasn't an American so I was considered an Iraqi there and uh, that was something that I wasn't prepared for so I would have to go and report to the Ministry of Interior on Fridays because <laughs> all Iraqis had to at the time so you had to go to the Iraqi embassy? No, to the Egyptian Ministry of Interior. Okay. And I needed a guardian because all Arab women travel with the guardian, which I didn't realize because I'm there as an American <laughs> in my head. <laughs> but not on paper, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, luckily there there was uh, a, a, an Iraqi professor, a Mandaean professor, uh, Thabit Abdullah, and his wife were there teaching, or she, he was teaching, the wife was accompanying him. And uh, Professor Abdullah said, I think I need to call your father <laughs> and ask him if it's okay for me to be your guardian, you know, for Samira, his wife, and, and Professor Abdullah. And they spoke for a bit. And um, so when I would go to the Ministry of Interior, Professor Abdullah would join me. And he was then pretty monumental in uh, helping me carve out my next steps. So what do you do after Cairo? You know, I was being taught at Cairo by professors who actually uh, were teaching at one time at AUB, but because of the Civil War came over to AUC, a lot of them went to Oxford or went to Georgetown. So I was exposed to quite a lot, did another League of Arab States, but actually got to go to the real League of Arab States, which was remarkable because yeah. uh, it's based out of Cairo. And I was taught by uh, a, a man who later became the the Secretary General of the League, Nassif Hetti, and a few other inspiring professors who really got me to realize that I wanted to do more with, with uh, Middle East studies. So we selected, uh, Professor Abdullah kind of guided me in selecting a few schools. And then when the letters came back, he said, uh, 
you need to go to University of Chicago. <laughs> and, I, and I said, oh, that's great. I have cousins and uncles and, you know, yeah. the whole historian community lives there. Um, so I ended up accepting to go to University of Chicago to do a master's there. So I spent two years doing a master's there. In my, Middle East studies? Yeah. Okay. My thesis was focused on the mandate period uh, for uh, Iraq and the Syrian question, and that was remarkable. My thesis advisor was Rashid Khalidi, who was a Palestinian scholar who's now at Columbia. And University of Chicago for me was uh, a very intimidating place coming from Ceres, California, then Modesto. <laughs> so I was around really people who who left a mark in academia, and I felt like I was, you know, this <laughs> this nobody coming to this big school and trying to to make something. But it, it was uh, it formed me. It helped me really. Uh, develop who I wanted to be and how I wanted to contribute. So at University of Chicago, uh, my mentor was a woman named uh, Jacqueline Baba, and she she had she had uh, carved out the human rights program at University of Chicago. It was a Chicago was a quarter system, so it was a three quarter system, and it was one of the few. A human rights programs that wasn't linked to a law school, but it was an interdisciplinary program. So you got to teach, you know, be, you were taught by philosophers like Martha Nussbaum to to um, forensic experts who had just come from doing the mass grave excavations in Priador to to uh, you know law professors. So it was a wide spectrum of what human rights entails because it's not just law; it's more right. more than that. And by now, it's coming to 98, so 97, 98, that summer was when the Rome Statute was passed to create the permanent International Criminal Court. Leading up to that, I was speaking to Professor Baba and asking her, you know, should I continue with the PhD? And, and I had done some big travels. I had gone to Yemen and Palestine. And, you know, being on the, in the ground, you also think a lot about, well, how can you have an impact? <laughs> Is a PhD yeah. going to help you, or is it something more? Your travels to Yemen and Palestine were for for humanitarian or for human rights work? Uh, for research projects, okay. so I joined joined. Uh, so Palestine was uh, later on. It was there was a human rights org, the first actually human rights organization in Ramallah in the West Bank called Al Haq. So I did a project with uh, one of my colleagues from University of Chicago. Catherine Cook, who now works for the UN there. We, so we, we arrived there together to do a project that was take, we did a study on, on women and law. So from judges to lawyers to, we did a study of kind of figuring out where women fit in the mm-hmm. legal system. Yemen was a joint project with a professor, Margot Badran. It ended up being um, turned into a book, the research that we did which she published, and it was a research project with the University of Sana'a. Which is the capital of Yemen, I think. Yeah. yeah. Well, Yemen had, so Yemen, it used to be two, right? So it was merged, and Sana'a became, so not Adan, but Sana'a became the, the capital, and it was a little bit more conservative than, than Adan. And so we joined the university in doing a, a study on the newly passed personal status law, and the impact it had on women. Mm-hmm. 
And just being on the ground and interviewing people who had um, had a big impact on me in trying to figure out how can I, you know, can I achieve more by doing a further, you know, doctorate or, or should I do something else? Can you briefly go into the personal status law? So Aden was, Aden was very much influenced by the British, right? Because it, it was a little bit more liberal uh, and Sana'a was influenced by Saudi Arabia, right? Mm. So what had happened is when the two merged, the more conservative took over. So the types of issues we were, this was a long time ago, but the, the types of issues we were dealing with were the basic rights of women, such as if your husband chooses to take another wife, do you as the first wife have a say? Does he need your permission? Mm. You know, so the law may say, he has to get your permission. But what we were trying to figure out was, well, is that actually what's what's happening? So we spoke to quite a lot of women about uh, how they interpreted the law in their day-to-day, which was a complete dichotomy. You know, it, it wasn't uh, how it was in the books. And that's what we recorded. So we recorded basically the voices of the women and how they interpreted how yeah. the law impacted them. So what made you, what was kind of the deciding factor between PhD program and law school? It was that, it was trying to understand how I can have a more direct impact. Mm-hmm. And... And the world of human rights. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, human rights, and also focused on the Middle East. So I was bringing those two together. And um, so Professor Baba said, you need to... Was she Syrian? No, no, no. She was British. She was married to. Uh, she is British. Um, she's now teaching at. She's teaching at the Harvard um, Human Rights Program. Okay. She married an Indian man and took on okay. his name. Yeah. Professor Baba, I said, you have this amazing opportunity to continue legal. She she was an asylum lawyer from London, so it worked on asylum cases. Mm. I should have probably said that. So she was a lawyer by training. And she said, if you cross over to downtown, you have um, the DePaul College of Law, and there you have uh, Sharif Basuni, who's now deceased, an Egyptian professor who was heading the human rights law clinic within the law school. So it wasn't an interdisciplinary program, it was actually in the legal, Mm -hmm. in the law school. So, and I I hadn't, I I didn't know of him prior to that, so I went over. I applied, I got accepted, and then I went over naively, and I introduced myself, and I said, I'm here to work at the Human Rights Law Clinic. (laughs) It never hurts to ask, right? (laughs) What can you... So I ended up actually volunteering. I worked on on non-Middle Eastern cases. Um, The summer, I I ended up just volunteering time to work in the clinic. But first-year law school, you don't do anything but first-year law school. So I was told, well, actually... If you're going to join, you can't do anything until the second year. And that was just tormenting me. Wow. <laughs> so I had to go through first year torts and property law and contracts law, which, of course, I, I wasn't intending to be a litigator. I wasn't intending to be a traditional lawyer. Uh, I was the oddball in my class. And <laughs> I had to wait an entire year and stick it through and get to year two and finally i Before was you can dive able deep, yeah. to be a fellow at the clinic yeah okay 
So. Were there any barriers through all of these years of education, like going through school that you saw? It doesn't sound like it. Oh, yeah. No, value, no, no, but... no. There were many barriers because I felt like I was always struggling. You know, you're, I mean, I was an immigrant kid. I wasn't, my parents weren't college educated. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't, it was hard. It was hard. What was your connection to the Assyrian community in Chicago while studying at DePaul? Well, I would attend functions. I would attend the convention. I would be with my relatives all the time when I wasn't studying. Studying took up the majority of my time. Mm -hmm. It was a very intense period. I loved being in Chicago. I loved the community. During my master's program, I I was more integrated because I did a lot of research. I actually presented at one of the conventions. I think it was in Boston or Connecticut. I can't remember early on when I thought I was going to develop something uh, different. A PhD, I, was, I thought I would go down that track. What happens when you finish up with law school? So the last two years of law school. So it's total so three years or Three four years. years. Okay. It's a three-year program. I, uh, so I decided to specialize in international law. So I did international law and comparative law with Sharif Basuni. And um, what so that did a couple of things It exposed me to the kind of a, a niche that was developing at the time. Sharif Basuni is considered one of the fathers of international law. But he uh, was at Rome, passed the Rome statute. So to to he was one of the the founders of this brilliant concept to bring kind of the world together to recognize the need for a permanent institution. Mm-hmm. And so he was he came back from that and what what happened after Rome was that they needed to then draft the elements of crime and the rules of procedure and evidence. So there were preparatory commissions hosted by the UN. Uh, the United Nations and intercessionals, and Sharif Pasuni was also president of a of an institute in Syracuse, in Sicily, in Italy. So these meetings would take place in either New York, at UN headquarters, or in Sicily. So our institute was heavily involved in that. And so as a, I was a Sullivan Fellow, I was the coordinator uh, of, of that, and I attended those meetings. I also attended other meetings at the UN. So that gave me kind of direct exposure to how the UN functioned and also what the tribunals were. And there were people coming over to attend these meetings from, at the time, the ad hoc tribunals. So the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia and for Rwanda. So those lawyers were coming in and attending. So I got to meet and talk to them. So when I graduated law school, I had already applied uh, to, be, to, be, to be a legal intern at the Yugoslavia Tribunal in The Hague. Mm. I had no idea <laughs> what I was getting into. So yeah. the plan was to go there and um, spend six months and train and then come back to the U.S. Mm. But I, I, it wasn't so clear in my head. I had done an asylum and immigration clinic at at the law school, worked on a trafficking case, which 
uh, impacted me a lot. So I thought that that would be an area that I could focus on for a few years and then join international law. That was kind of a skeleton. I wasn't really 100% sure. So I get to The Hague and um, I join the the registry in September 2001. Where's The Hague? The Hague uh, is in the Netherlands. It's near Amsterdam, 45 minutes by train from Amsterdam. But it's the capital of peace and justice. So it's an important place for anyone who's wanting to work in international law and um, or wanting to kind of witness how international law is applied. There are a few courts in The Hague. Uh, maybe I can say that, just a couple words on that. So you have the International Court of Justice, which is the permanent uh, UN court, which deals with state disputes. So there's an interesting case right now that's going on between Armenia and Azerbaijan, for example. Mm-hmm. So you can follow really interesting debates um, between states, but it doesn't deal with international with with individual criminal responsibility. Okay. So what the UN did then is it created the ad hoc tribunals. So one for the former Yugoslavia, which was based in The Hague, and one for Rwanda, which was based in Arusha, Tanzania. And that was, that's this is post-Nuremberg, right? So this is the first time after Nuremberg where you're dealing with an international individual, court. yeah, an international court that's going to bring individuals to account for the their alleged crimes. Yeah. I chose to join the Yugoslavia Tribunal. And I focused on, uh, so I, I, I applied and got accepted into the registry. And then when I was about to finish, I extended the internship by a little bit. But when I was about to finish the, <laughs> the internship and go back to the U.S., uh, Slobodan Milosevic was arrested, the former president of, uh, of Yugoslavia. And no one was expecting him to be handed over. This is what year? So this would have been 2001. And he came over. I think he was arrested. He was arrested and then went through kind of the national process and was handed over in 2002, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Well, the tribunal found itself in this really um, unforeseen situation where they had to then prepare for uh, taking in a former head of state. The indictments had been confirmed, but I don't think anyone thought that we'd actually get him. Mm-hmm. And they got So what had happened is um, I was close to finishing my, my training, and I was called in and asked if I'd be interested to stay to, to support the team, uh, the registry team, on Milosevic's trial. And of course, that was a once in a lifetime opportunity. So I decided to stay. 20 years later, <laughs> I'm still in the Hague. Yeah. So, but that was not at all the, the intention at the okay. time. So describe kind of the, what your role was, and then describe the, the setting. What, what is actually being uh, we know that Slobodan is being prosecuted, but what kind of explain the the inner workings of that process? So for the, the Yugoslavia tribunal, for many of us who 
it was seen as a laboratory for us. We were training at a historical time uh, our skills and and what was happening. I mean, people were highly motivated, highly focused, working around the clock. You know, I would be in the office until eleven o'clock a lot <laughs> because we were also keep in mind a trial that was paper driven at the time. This was before automation. So there was lots of binders, lots of evidence. It was, so the prosecutor brought three indictments. You had the indictment that was um, focused on the crimes that that were committed in Bosnia, Croatia, and Kosovo. And the, the work that needed to go into preparing for kind of the different chapters of the trial was intense. The trial ended up lasting four years. First two years, it was the prosecution case, and the prosecution case was divided into those three parts. So you had different senior um, lawyers, prosecutors leading the evidence with a principal principal, um, prosecutor. So my role was to, for the first two years, was to support the judges, and I represented the registrar inside the courtroom as the court officer. And that turned out to be... Uh, an important role because the judges were, especially the pre- presiding judge, uh, late Judge Judge May, who's no longer with us. They were they were um, concerned about how the defense evidence would come through because what's important was that Milosevic made it very well known in the beginning when the prosecution opened its case that he didn't recognize the tribunal. So he didn't recognize the legality of the tribunal, and he wasn't intending to engage with the tribunal. And that's a problem (laughs) for the judges, because for the judges to issue a fair judgment, they need to actually hear evidence on both sides. So one of the big concerns was, how are we going to hear the defense evidence? Mm -hmm. So this was a big kind of sidebar conversation all the time, is how are we going to hear the defense Milosevic did not appoint a lawyer, and one wasn't appointed to him. There were there were um, assigned lawyers later on, but that that became there were amicus, um, but it became tricky because he refused to communicate with them, and that's a conversation in itself. <laughs> he also had legal associates from Belgrade, from Serbia, who yeah. supported him behind the scenes, uh, and that you know, but they weren't allowed to come into the courtroom. Why? because he didn't recognize the court, uh, right? So by allowing his lawyers to come in, that means that he would be recognizing the court. But this was this was the complication, right? Is how are we going to get him to engage with the evidence uh, when he's he doesn't have his lawyers inside the court? So different models were tested. Uh, what was important for us at the time was that this was the first time we were testing a case where, or we were supporting a case where an accused was self-represented. So when you look at the rules of procedure and evidence at the time and the, the, the internal procedures, they were all written for an accused in a re- remand center, which was in the UN detention facility in The Hague. Uh, and the remand center is inside the Dutch prison. So we carved out a space within the Dutch prison by the North Sea. And um, 
but we didn't we didn't have a model where where uh, a lawyer <laughs> wasn't in the picture, right? Yeah. Whether it was serving court filings or it was taking in court submissions or preparing for witness testimonies and proofing witnesses or all of those processes were designed for lawyers. It wasn't designed for an accused who was in detention in a remand center. So we had to come up with a model that would allow him to participate meaningfully in his own trial mm-hmm. when he legally didn't recognize the tribunal, right? So it was it was really um, a challenging a challenging time. We we ended up designing a, a model. We created a pro se liaison office. I became the liaison officer. Well, actually, the registrar went to Milosevic and said, um, "Here's our plan," <laughs> and because keep in mind, I had now been working in the courtroom for two years, right? So he was used to seeing me day in and day out. So the registrar, uh, Hans Holthaus, a Dutch registrar at the time, went to him in the detention facility and said. We're on because we were on break between the prosecution case and the start of the defense case. So we needed to come up with something to help him prepare for starting his defense case. And so he said, this is the model that we have in mind. We want to create a liaison office. And these are kind of the terms of reference and how we expect you to meaningfully participate. And, and Milosevic says to Hans, he says, who's going to be the liaison officer? And he's, and he said, well, I'm thinking it's going to be Evelyn because I was there with them. And he's like, okay, let's do it. <laughs> it wow. was, I mean, the funny thing about, about that, I mean, how do I, he, he, Milosevic was so interested in the fact that I was a Syrian. Really? Because he had an amazing relationship with Saddam Hussein. <laughs> And then visited like? visited Iraq quite a lot. Wow. So, you know, he's Eastern Orthodox and was very interested in the Syrian community and was very interested in the fact that I was born in Baghdad. And, yeah. and that really opened a dialogue and a communication between us. And it helped me uh, communicate, obviously, neutrally on behalf of mm-hmm. the court. Mm-hmm. And that was the, I think, the way I was able to achieve a, an important goal, which was to get him to meaningfully engage so that the judges could hear the evidence, right? I mean, that was our goal, was for the judges to hear the defense case mm-hmm. and to get uh, Milosevic to cross-examine uh, the prosecution witnesses. <laughs> and, you know, that that's engagement. But unfortunately, uh, we got to the four-year mark. We were very close to finishing the case and unfortunately um, he died in in the prison cell Um, how did you feel when you received word that he passed away uh it was a saturday at 10 a.m and i got a call from our senior legal advisor Uh, i was told to basically come immediately to the tribunal and there was a senior the registrar had called a kind of emergency task force to respond and um I think I was numb. I didn't quite understand at the time. We've had quite a few uh, accused who've taken their life, so I didn't quite understand what had happened. And that wasn't—I mean, he died of natural causes. There was an autopsy done. So in the detention facility, because it's a part of the Dutch prison system, we do our own investigation. But the Dutch, out of because of their national law and requirements, they do theirs. So the Dutch forensics team had gone in, and we're doing. Uh, 
doing their uh, what they normally would do. So mm-hmm. so their results came out and it showed that it was natural death. But one of the key steps for the Dutch was that the body needed to be identified in the cell. So I was asked to go with one of his senior legal associates uh, to identify the body in the in the prison cell. Yeah, that was the first time mm-hmm. for me uh, to see to see that. And then I think for us after that, it was it took some time to recover because many of us, especially the lawyers who were working directly with the judges on you know day in and day out on just imagine having to just let go and nothing coming of it right. and so you i think people experienced quite a lot of grief and um yeah it was a hard period what did you do in between kind of the end of that case and then your next endeavor did you have to recharge so this was march 2006 i took on a new role. Uh, I I continued to work. I've always worked in the registry, so that's been my, so for 20 years of my career, that's where I've been focused as a legal officer working for the registry. And um, I switched then at that point to, so the tribunal was coming, it was winding down its work, or it was expected to by the UN Security Council. And we were in a what what we refer to as a completion strategy. And so one of the elements of this completion strategy was that the lower level accused, the lower level accused who had indictments already confirmed against them, they would be transferred back to the national systems. And so I was asked to support that project. So I helped. Um, transfer the cases back to Croatia, Serbia, Bosnia. Most of the cases went out, went back to Bosnia because Bosnia had created the BIH state court that took in um, took back the cases. And that was really interesting because that then dealt with co- cooperation, judicial cooperation, supporting them by handing over our evidence so that they can lead the cases themselves, sharing some of the knowledge, physically transferring the accused back. That was the most interesting part because <laughs> it comes in all shapes and forms. Yeah. The the, the transport method. Because uh, you're, you're physically taking these accused individuals, members of the, the former regime, back, back to, to their Bosnia. national systems. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you literally had to accompany them. 13 of them, yeah. Be at the Vienna airport. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we had to, we had to, I mean, it's, it was um, a part of, because the tribunal wasn't going to exist long enough to hear those cases. Yeah. And these individuals had been in remand and pretrial detention for quite a long time, waiting for their trials to start. So it was the right thing to do. Yeah. So that chapter closes mm-hmm. and then. So I was then approached by the, the registrar of the at the time, uh, who's now deceased, Robin Vincent of the Special Tribunal for Lebanon. He was heading. He mm-hmm. he was asked by the UN to head the advance team to set up the mm-hmm. the Special Tribunal for Lebanon, which is a hybrid court to deal with the crime of terrorism. 
Was it a, was it a well, specific it was, individual? Uh, it was, so the crime that was committed was an assassination against former Prime Minister Rafi Kariri, plus connected cases. And so I was seconded. At the time, the Special Tribunal for Lebanon had an agreement with the Yugoslavia Tribunal to use some of the staff to help them set up. So I was asked to help. I was seconded to come and help them set up their court administration, draft some of the practice directions, and then also do um, set up the victim, later on set up the victim participation unit because Mm -hmm. the Special Tribunal for Lebanon has many unique features, one of which was that victims participated in the proceedings, which the Yugoslavia Tribunal did not have. And so... Who petitioned the terrorism case for Lebanon? So I joined, I was seconded and supported them in June 2009, but then resigned from the Yugoslavia Tribunal and officially joined the Lebanon Tribunal in January 2010 as the senior legal advisor to the registrar. What does seconded mean? I was borrowed. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I was, it was through an agreement. So I still remained a, a staff member of the Yugoslavia Tribunal, but I was borrowed to help them. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So you spend the next several years working on the special tribunal? Yeah. So I spent uh, 12 years there. Okay. I Essentially the same type of work that you were doing in the previous case? No, very different. So I was no longer inside the courtroom, except uh, when we needed to make submissions. Uh, But I wasn't working directly on the cases. I was the the senior legal advisor to the registrar until October 2007. So that role is more of a general counsel role. Mm -hmm. So I was working on just a wide range of of, um, projects, works, you know, drafting agreements, um, negotiating agreements. I did serve the first indictment uh, inside Lebanon. So when the first indictment was issued, I was the one who had to take it to Beirut. My chapter at the working at the Special Tribunal for Lebanon was very uh, meaningful because it brought together kind of my passion for wanting to work on areas that helped the Middle East and um, also the law. So supporting uh, supporting the mandate was important for me and uh, it was an important chapter of my career mm-hmm. that's now come to an end. I've just completed my contract after 12 years. The tribunal, unfortunately, is coming to an end uh, due to lack of funding, which is um, unfortunate. What do you mean by mandate? So when the the tribunal was established by the UN Security Council through Mm. the United Nations Chapter 7 uh, authority. And so when they establish it, they give it a specific kind of job. And the mandate is that job. What what are they going to do? And so they gave them a specific task, which was to deal with the Hariri assassination, as you mentioned earlier, and also uh, connected case cases and related cases. So unfortunately, the tribunal was unable to, even though we were very close uh, to bringing the connected case forward due to lack of funding, they had to, uh, 
that to stop that trial. The funding source was? The funding source is through... So when the, the Security Council established the court, they, they mandated Lebanon to pay 49% of the budget. Mm. And then the 51% of the budget was voluntary. Unfortunately, Lebanon's going through quite a hard, hard period, especially after the explosion of August uh, last year. So economically, they're devastated. So they couldn't actually pay their normal. <laughs> they've always cooperated. They've always paid their part, except this period, coupled with the pandemic, hasn't been easy. So that made it difficult for the tribunal to continue. And voluntary contributions didn't meet the the, the part that, that would have made up for the Lebanese mm. contribution. So unfortunately, the tribunal is closing its doors sooner than expected. Uh, which is unfortunate for the victims, especially those who've been waiting for so long to to have their case heard. Are you taking time in between to step back and really think about what you want to embark on next? Or do you have some sort of rough framework of what you want to do? So this interview has been very helpful because it walks you through memory lane, (laughs) which... Which is important because if you if you kind of recap my my path, I started off thinking I was going to be in the field, that I was going to be traveling in the Middle East. I was supposed to be focusing on people directly. I did not think that I'd be in an office setting or in a court setting. That wasn't something that I really had envisioned for myself. But but it is it is what happened, which is which was great because I learned a lot. I developed a lot, my professional instincts and my knowledge. So now, um, being where I am, I'm I'm actually contemplating doing some more field work. So going, I, I have an interesting uh, offer to join a project in northern Iraq to do some training work uh, for magistrates and judges, and 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 that might be uh, prosecutors that that are handling some of the. ISIS trials uh, on fair on international fair fair trial standards. So taking some of the experience that I've gained and and bridging it, mm-hmm. which which I think makes a lot of sense. What organization was is the offer through? I don't think I can name the organization okay. right now, but I have been already doing. Uh, I've been supporting the UN Office for Drugs and Crime for quite a few years in trainings. We do bring. Uh, judges and prosecutors to the Hague, mm-hmm. or they bring them to the Hague, and we train them in our in our buildings. Yeah. So I've been doing that already for quite a few years, and this is now a continuation of that work, and just more specializing in that work because I think it 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 really has a more direct mm-hmm. that direct impact. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that I should have <laughs> asked you? Well, I, I, I don't want people to, especially kind of the new generation listening who may be thinking law is their career path. I, I just don't want to, them to think that, that my path is a traditional path. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to deceive anyone in thinking they could just become international practitioners or lawyers. Uh, I graduated from law school at a very specific time. I was at the right place at the right time. It is much harder today to get into the international tribunals. So 
in you know in, in taking things into perspective i think if someone is interested in international work what especially when i was hiring people what i was looking or what i'm looking for when i'm hiring people is someone who has core national experience which i didn't have what does that mean that means they work in their own system first right wherever they come from so Whether, if they come from America, they work in the American judicial system. Or Australia or okay. anywhere, right? Okay. Sweden. It, it is something that is so fundamental that for me, I was, I was again, at, at the right place at the right time. They, they, needed, they needed the help. Mm-hmm. But that meant that I was learning, learning on the job in a very, very intense setting, which I just don't think is normal. I think it's better to work... If, if someone's interested in becoming an international prosecutor, let's say it's better to work as a domestic prosecutor, get your foundation work done, uh, and and allow yourself to be trained, right? This is, yeah. this is the advice I always give. I've given it to people I mentor, my cousins. I tell them, you know, pick strong places to start your career from that perspective. Can they train me? Can they give me th- th- those, you know, whether it's drafting memos or pleading or, you know, having having the support that you need? Because at the international tribunals, you don't get that necessarily. You don't get an induction in the way you would do in a they law They just office. kind of throw you, here's a stack of papers and go run. With well, I, I was lucky, okay, yeah. to be honest. my I was lucky because I had bosses who were excellent. And my boss... Gave, well, he gave me the rules of procedure and evidence, <laughs> and he told me, memorize it because you'll be tested on it. And he tested me on it, but he didn't just test me on it, you know, in a, in a traditional sense. He actually gave me scenarios and asked me what I would do. And, okay. and But that helped me really develop my foundation. But that wasn't the norm. That's not what, you know, I had, I had colleagues who, who it was sink or swim. They had to, they had to learn it as they go. They, they didn't receive the same coaching that I had. Yeah. What's your dream job? I think a dream job is, is for me, a job that gives you the freedom to really um, design something that can help people. And I say that because when in these institutions, there's so many barriers, right? There's either politics or funding or that they're there are a lot of restrictions. My dream job doesn't really have a title, but it would be just having the freedom to bring together a motivated group of people and to help them in in a way that is meaningful to those who are receiving the help. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, you need to understand, if you're going up to northern Iraq, and you're helping. You need to understand what is it that they actually need. You don't go in with your own mindset. I'm going to go and I'm going to help in this way. Absolutely. It's, it's just really delivering a service mm-hmm. that has meaning and impact. Why do you come back to Modesto? This is my grounding. This is where it all started. And this is where the dreams were cultivated. I think... Modesto taught me, you know, you, you refer to the conversation we had one day, the other day, and you said something that I believe in so fundamentally, because not everyone who makes a difference needs to have a college degree, right? 
We talked about that. Mm -hmm. The key is that whatever it is that you choose to do, you do it the best you can, right? You try the hardest that you know how to. And that's something I learned here in Modesto. I learned, learned it by watching my father. He worked extremely hard to do the best he can to give us a good life. And, and that's a fundamental lesson that I think you take wherever, yeah. wherever you go. Evelyn, are you open to being a mentor to folks that want to get into this field? You know, there's a reason why I mentioned the people who've had an influence in my life, and that's because I I couldn't have achieved what I've what I've achieved without those individuals who I had to really gain the confidence to approach and ask questions, and and um, and they willingly guided me, and without their help, I couldn't have gotten to where where I've gotten. So I'm absolutely willing to to give back in the same way. Evelyn, we have listeners from all over the world. What is one thing that you'd like to leave with them? I think I'd like to maybe repeat that it's important for parents to have trust in their children. Uh, I do believe strongly that every generation should surpass the other. I think we have to allow for progress in our community. And the way to do that is to really give space to to the new generation to cultivate their own passions and interests and skills and expertise and not to hinder them from that path. It is important for our community to progress and without having that freedom, uh, it will be difficult. My father had trust in me. He he believed that what he had instilled in me would remain with me and he was absolutely right and um, i think we have a very strong community with strong values you asked me why do i come back to Minesto? i come back to Minesto because the roots are here and it's what helped me have faith in my my own self and to go out into the world and to to do something of, of value i hope thank you Thank you so much for listening to the Assyrian Podcast and your continued support. Please be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening to and share the episode with your family and friends. Thank you.